Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. Our topic today is the critical role America's law schools play in closing our nation's justice gap. Earlier this year, LSE released our 2022 report on the justice gap, that is the gulf between the legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. The report found that three in four low-income households experienced one or more civil legal problems in the past year. What are those problems? They are typically involving securing and protecting basic needs such as housing, education, healthcare, income, and safety. And even more sobering, low-income Americans do not get any or enough help for 92%, let me repeat that, 92% of their substantial legal problems. With that backdrop, today I am joined by leaders from three great American law schools. Our law schools train the next generation of lawyers who will be confronting the justice gap. The enormity of the gap also clearly calls for innovation, and we look to law schools as sources of new ideas and innovation. And finally, when legal emergencies strike, as they have consistently during the pandemic, our law schools can be enormous sources of current legal resources. Our guests today are Tom Miles, Bill Trainer, and Miguel Willis. Tom Miles is the Dean and Clifton R. Musser Professor of Law and Economics at the University of Chicago Law School. Bill Trainer is the Dean and Executive Vice President of Georgetown University Law Center, and he holds the Law Center's Paul Regis Dean Leadership Chair. Miguel Willis is the innovator in residence at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School's Future of Profession Initiative. He concurrently serves as the executive director of the Access to Justice Tech Fellows, a national nonprofit organization that develops summer fellowships for law students seeking to leverage technology to create equitable legal access for low-income and marginalized populations. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for being with us. I'd like to start with a general question uh, for all three of you, and that is, how can law schools and law students help narrow this tremendous justice gap? And Tom, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Ron. It's it's wonderful to be with you and to be with Bill and Miguel and to talk about this important subject. I think you know there's a number of ways in which law schools and law students can can work towards shrinking the justice gap. I mean, the first and foremost, I think, is educating our students about it, that introducing them to the idea of the existence of the justice gap. I think, you know, there's a probably a parallel to how the teaching of, say, first year criminal law has changed in recent years. I think now it's quite common in first year criminal law classes, form structures to introduce basic facts about what is going on in society with incarceration with the levels of incarceration, with uh, racial disparities in the criminal justice system, um, as well as, of course, teaching all the traditional criminal law uh, doctrines. And I think it's very important for 
our law students today as they think about an introductory course like civil procedure, but certainly not limited to that, to learn about the basic facts about our civil justice system. And part of that would be learning basic facts about the disparities and in access to, to civil justice and what you just quoted, Ron, from the LSE's recent report, I think is really are a really important source of facts for our students to have and to, to grapple with. You know, another way in which the law schools can advance in helping close the justice gap is, of course, for faculty members to do scholarship on it and to unearth more facts and to propose and to pose the challenging questions that the justice gap exposes. I expect that all of us uh, would like to talk about our law clinics and the great work that they do in providing direct legal services, as well as in giving students an opportunity to participate in developing their skills and in also serving clients directly. I think a number of law schools now, uh, the University of Chicago is one, also challenges students to uh, provide pro bono legal service during their time in law school. It's separate and apart from any participation in any law clinics. And I think through those combinations of things, one of the ways the law schools can help work towards closing the justice gap is by graduating a generation of students who are aware of it and understand it and have a set of values about providing service to individuals that need it. And whatever their role is, some of the graduates are going to go on and spend their full-time career in providing legal services to people in need, but others will have other types of clients, but they should take with them the idea that providing service on a pro bono basis to people in need is a value that they should always hold on to and work to cherish. I think those are some of the ways that they come to mind as to how law schools can help work towards closing the justice gap. Bill, general thoughts. I want to follow up uh, in a moment about the eviction work you did last year, but you know, any other sort of more general thoughts about law schools and the justice gap? I think Tom's point that you should educate the law students uh, about the challenges that people face and the access to justice gap, that's so important. You know, because I think a lot of law students, you know, they come to law school and they don't understand, first of all, what a difference having a lawyer makes. And then how many people don't have lawyers? You know, I mean, we have an asylum clinic, for example, and people without lawyers in asylum hearings 16% of them win. In our clinic, 90% of them win. So, I mean, you know, just think about that. You know, that's the students who go through that realize that, you know, the odds are people would be deported who had a legal right to be in this country. So it both helps them understand the challenges, but it gives them a sense that they can make a difference because what lawyers do is just so important. So, so it's the education is both about the need and what they can do. Uh, I think the research is really crucial. We're all we're starting to think now about what can non-lawyers do? What can technology do? Can you have apps that do legal analysis? So the research is just absolutely crucial. I think two other things that I, I would just add before turning it over is that law schools can do pilot programs. So one of the things I'd like to talk about is Georgetown has started a a law firm with two firms in DC where we provide low cost legal representation to people who weren't a little too much for free legal services. You know, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see law schools across the country replicate. But I think law schools can really do pilots because we have we have a space for innovation that others don't have. 
And then the final thing that I think we should be doing more of is enlisting alumni, uh, you know, getting them involved and, and having the law school as a locus of activity involving our alumni. So those are, those are kind of my initial thoughts. And again, Ron, I just want to thank you for, for all you're doing and for having this podcast. And it's a pleasure to join you and, and Tom and Miguel. So thank you. Thanks, Bill. Miguel, what, what are your opening thoughts? Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. I definitely agree with uh, the points I mentioned. I think law schools play a huge role in creating an affordable education, right? We can't expect public interest lawyers and the next generation of justice scholars to be burdened with debt, that debt compounded on stress, anxiety, and uh, deprecated well-being. As we know, the legal profession has just tremendous issues with burnout in the public interest sector. Also thinking about that pipeline, right? Uh, I think that plays a huge role in this access to justice gap. And how can we get more law students of color, law students from underrepresented backgrounds, law students from first-generation households, law students who have been personally affected by a lot of the challenges of the access to justice gap, those that have the closest proximity. Law schools can play a great role in shepherding uh, law students through clinical experiences to rural areas where there's a huge need. And I know that the Rural Summer Fellows Program works with those, but thinking about ways that we can expand those types of opportunities you know, I primarily work with tech, so getting lawyers to think differently about solving these problems and issues in a collaboratory and interdisciplinary way, uh, partnering with those outside of the profession, uh, whether it's in the medical field or in design and other disciplines. Lawyers don't hold the monopoly to the issues that our most vulnerable communities and even the middle class face. Well, thanks. I, you know, I appreciate all three of your observations. One, one thing's for sure, we've got to do something different. We're at 92% in terms of the justice gap. So the status quo isn't working. We need more resources. We need to use our resources better and differently. And we need to really look at the justice system and the dispute resolution system and think about whether this is the optimal way to be resolving all of the uh, civil disputes we have, because right now we have a system that's largely designed by lawyers on the assumption that lawyers will be available for the people using the system, and that assumption is uh, is false. Bill, let's turn to a specific example of law schools stepping up to meet the, the justice gap in, in real time. Uh, last year, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, called on law schools to help address the national eviction crisis that uh, had gotten much worse as a result of the pandemic. A Census Bureau survey uh, at the time revealed that over 6 million American households were behind on their rent payments, and that half of those households believed that they would be evicted within two months, uh, really a catastrophic uh, possibility. And you at Georgetown, along with uh, New York University School of Law Dean Trevor Morrison, stepped up to organize and lead uh, law schools on really helping to address that emergency. Could you 
talk about what was the response from the law school community around the country. Yeah, it was it was terrific, Ron. And uh, what we were confronting, you you described it exactly right. Six million people were behind on their rent, uh, and about half of them were facing imminent eviction. Really, a crisis. Uh, so the White House, Gene Sperling at the White House, and the Attorney General wanted to mobilize uh, the bar to respond to that crisis. So they reached out to leaders of the bar across the country. They reached out to state chief justices, and they reached out to law schools. Uh, and I have to say, I was just amazed by the level of response. Uh, they reached out to us, I think, on a Saturday morning. Uh, and they said, we, you know, we'd like to see if you could get 10 law schools to, to join in this effort. And, you know, within a couple of days, we had 100 law school deans uh, signed on. Just so, so, so powerful. Because, you know, I think everybody realizes that, you know, there's such a profound access to justice gap. And, you know, these are, you know, the consequences of losing your home are disastrous. So we got, uh, you know, very quickly, 100 law school deans. And in, a, in the course of the initiative, we got 2,100 students to sign up. So, you know, more than 20 at each law school. Uh, and they represented 10,000 households. So absolutely incredibly impressive, very powerful, and making a real tangible difference. And then also having a long-term benefit because, you know, there's so many of the students who I've talked to at Georgetown and I've heard from other deans, when they did this, it altered their sense of what they could do in their legal careers. It may be that they would go work for, for legal services or that they would, you know, when they go to a firm, that they would do pro bono work. They could see the difference and it was transformative for them. Yeah, it, that was a, a tremendous example. We had some policy initiatives. We had a moratorium, a federal moratorium, as well as some state and local uh, moratoria. We had uh, a lot of financial resources, really for the first time, devoted to uh, avoiding evictions, $46 billion in uh, emergency rental assistance. But none of those solutions were self-executing. Uh, they all required somebody to uh, make sure that the moratoria were enforced, to make sure that the emergency rental assistance got into the uh, hands of the tenants and landlords for whom uh, the, the payments were designed. And it did make a difference. Uh, there were literally, you know, probably over a million households today that families uh, are still occupying their homes that would not have been the case had those, uh, that assistance not been available. Right. I mean, that, that's absolutely right, Ron. I mean, you know, you had billions of dollars of assistance, but first of all, people didn't know about the program. And then the people who knew about the program had to fill out the forms, you know, which could be too complicated for, you know, people who don't have any legal training. So, I mean, that's an example of, you know, law students, like in D.C., uh, the D.C. Attorney General had an initiative, pop-up clinics, and our students went there and they would spend weekends with people coming in telling, these are the forms, this will help you, it'll help the landlord, and let's sit down and we'll fill out the form together. So, you know, as you say, there are a million people in their homes who might have been evicted. And that's, you know, that's just starts a chain reaction that leads to breaking up of families, that leads to food insecurity, that leads to destruction of education. 
So, so important. And again, what, what legal services did and what law schools did affected so many lives. It should be noted, you know, you all have day jobs. Uh, your students and your faculty all have day jobs, if you will. And uh, this was really a call to add something to your already existing workloads. Is there a lesson learned here? I mean, again, we can't have an emer- we can't call an emergency uh, uh, every month. Uh, otherwise, it, uh, the the term emergency sort of loses its its meaning. But you know, is there a lesson learned about how to mobilize the legal resources of law schools, uh, you know, in a crisis like that. I mean, I think it shows very powerfully if we work together what we can do. And I do think actually one of the attorney general's ideas was we should try to find ways to replicate this moving forward and law schools should continue to have these ties. So that's something we're definitely focused on. Uh, and, but again, it's the part of the long-term benefit is you get the students to do this and it just affects their lives because they see what, what a difference it makes. So, uh, so I'm talking to other law school deans about finding ways to kind of continue this, this coalition. And I hope it'll make a real difference moving forward. Thanks. So certainly one cause of the justice gap is we just have failed to invest the, the resources particularly in legal aid lawyers, which is is my line of work. And we need to, we're not going to be able to hire enough legal aid lawyers alone to fix the problem. We need to leverage those legal resources, be it with pro bono resources, be it with law school assistance, or with technology, which leverages a given amount of of legal resources and allows those resources to be broadcast further. Uh, uh, And Miguel, I'd like you to talk about that. What is the access to Justice Tech Fellows Program and how does it expand access to justice for low-income and marginalized people? So the Tech Fellows Program is, in essence, um, a project-based experiential uh, summer program where we partner with legal aid organizations, defenders, associations, courts, um, nonprofit legal services, and we place uh, current law students, um, 1Ls, uh, 2Ls, in uh, over the summer where they work on projects, uh, technology projects, data-focused projects, projects where they're redesigning a court process, all with the aim and effort to increase or expand the delivery of legal services to uh, low-income and vulnerable communities. Part of the program, uh, we place them in a shortened boot camp training where they're learning different skills, uh, whether that's technology competence, uh, learning skills around data, design thinking, uh, plain language communications, um, how to effectively communicate to a, a lay person who may not have a college level education. Um, so what we're seeing is that, you know, half or so of the students may come with a tech background. I think the dynamics are, are changing for legal education. More students are coming with these second careers uh, we've had more fellows than other who have tech backgrounds, but for some, they don't. And I think the traditional legal education, while, um, you know, uh, 
many law schools are starting to rapidly change their curriculum to add more tech courses uh, that experiential opportunities around those to leverage tech and access to justice is very much still limited. I think the fellows are able to provide uh, instant capacity building for the organizations. I know we partner with a lot of LSC organizations uh, and we've sustained this partnership for over seven years. <laughs> and um, not only partnering with LSC orgs, but we partner with law schools. We partner with GW. Uh, we're based in uh, Penn, uh, my home institution. Our program is open to every law student across the country. So we try to be flexible. We try to be open and we try to create these opportunities for law students to make impact. Now, technology, as I say, is really a key piece of LSC strategy for leveraging scarce uh, legal aid resources. Over the last 20 years, we've granted out uh, about $77 million to uh, the legal aid programs we fund to help develop innovations in technology that will be impactful and that could be re replicated elsewhere around the country. Actually, um, I, I yeah, go ahead, Bill. Because I think, you know, what, what, uh, what you're doing, what Miguel is doing is so important. But, you know, just to give you kind of a, a, a one example of what we're doing and, and what it means. So we have a course where people design uh, apps that do legal analysis. You know, so, you know, one of the big problems is somebody's entitled to benefits, but it takes forever for them to see a social worker. And then because social workers are so, you know, have so have such a heavy workload, you know, often the analysis doesn't capture everything that the person's entitled to. So we have a course at, uh, that Tanina Rustin, one of our faculty teaches, and they design apps that essentially provide legal services for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to, to, to get those legal services. So, um, and some of the people are, are, you know, electrical engineers and some of them are, you know, majored in, in, in ancient Greek, uh, and, you know, and, but everybody is capable of learning how to use technology in, or, in ways that will make, help address the access to justice gap. Yeah, I've, it's a great program, and I'm familiar with it. I I think they had a hackathon a few years back, yeah, and the the and and uh, and have had it on a number of occasions. And I I believe the winning app uh, one year was a uh, uh, a mobile activated power of attorney that could be created very readily in an emergency setting. We've all either witnessed or heard about people being admitted to an emergency room and, you know, right before they're in desperate need of assistance. And, uh, but before they can get that, they need to sign 17 forms and, uh, uh, and, and, and the forms are all in language that, you know, probably even us with, uh, even we with uh, legal training couldn't understand. So the idea was to reduce some of those forms uh, into English and put them on a uh, make them available by mobile phone so that somebody in real time could actually uh, create a legally enforceable uh, power of attorney. That's such a great example. And, and just think about what a difference that makes. Exactly. So let's pivot a bit and talk about regulation and the justice gap. Obviously, uh, the vast majority of regulation of the legal profession is by the profession itself and is, is done on a state-by-state -state basis. 
Miguel, the, the past few years, especially during the pandemic, uh, have been a, a time of intense innovation and adaptation for many professions, uh, and certainly for the legal profession as we've changed uh, service delivery models uh, and, and other and court procedures. As a result, conversations about the future of the profession are gaining more attention than ever. There was just a great debate in the ABA about uh, you know, investment by non-lawyers and law firms uh, and uh, whether to what extent non-lawyers uh, should be uh, enabled to uh, do work uh, that historically has been done only by lawyers, sort of the uh, uh, legal version of uh, nurse practitioners. When we're thinking about the future of the legal profession, how, how do we keep access for justice at the center of that discussion? Well, I think we uh, build programming, um, we invest in activities, and we really invest in the infrastructure to make that happen. There are um, increasing number of students that are uh, coming out of law school while they may take a job that leverages their JD, they may not necessarily practice. Uh, law schools need to readily respond to how can we leverage those students for agents of change. You know, I think a legal education teaches critical analysis, teaches how to examine and think critically about uh, intractable problems. How can we leverage uh, those uh, students as change makers. I had a great conversation with Michael Gordon at uh, Penn uh, Graduate School of Education yesterday. They have a whole infrastructure built where they have, uh, you know, a catalyst where they can incubate ideas, uh, but not just like creating solutions. Uh, they have accelerators to propel those solutions to scale. Uh, we need to think really creative and constantly challenge our own assumptions. I think, and, and that happens with collaboration, uh, that happens with having new people at the table. Uh, so thinking about that diversity and equity piece, that happens when we don't close the doors and, and only allow people in the profession in. You wouldn't run a restaurant and um, try to figure out how to improve a restaurant without talking to the customers about uh, what they like about the food service and decor. If you just talk to the, uh, you know, the wait staff or the owners, uh, you'd probably get a very different set and probably a less helpful set of comments than you would uh, talking to the, uh, the diners. Oh, definitely. And I think, um, you know, law schools are uniquely positioned to kind of lead that charge, right? Uh, you see growing number of law labs across the country, which are taking uh, precedent research uh, and, you know, activating it, bringing it to practitioners, piloting projects, and using that, you know, new scholarship and, and research to allow it and leverage it to have the most impact. Uh, right away. So I'm, I'm loving this expansion of, of law labs throughout the country, both providing uh, an outlet for students to do more opportunities uh, and also, uh, you know, develop path-breaking ways to address justice problems. 
Tom, at the outset of our conversation, you mentioned the need to educate law students about the gravity of the justice gap uh, in civil law. What strategies would you suggest to help students understand the reality of the justice gap and uh, how they might encounter it in their careers and how they might be helpful both during law school and after they graduate to address it? Sure. I, you know, I think the the very easy thing to do is to recommend that students read the Justice Gap Report itself. I mean, it's a, a really great piece of social scientific research that really lays out in a very systematic way the magnitudes of the Justice Gap. And I think it's hard to come away from reading that report without being presented with a, with a number of different questions. And I mean, I think, as, as Bill said, one comes away with an appreciation about the importance of legal expertise and the difference that that can make in the lives of individuals. Um, one comes away with a, a real sense of, of the stakes of it. And then uh, one has to really think normatively about what, what, in what ways is the legal system fair when one side is represented and the other one has no access to legal expertise. The, that seems by design pretty lopsided. And then I think naturally that leads to questions about also instrumentally, are we getting the right legal outcomes or the correct legal outcomes emerging from the legal system when uh, legal processes, whether litigation or other forms of legal processes, proceed in this lopsided manner? And so I think then it leads to real questions about how do we equalize that and what resources can be brought to bear. And I think the conversation here about um, technology, can that be useful? You know what? What sorts of additional resources can be brought to bear to to equalize that? I think all of those are questions that lend themselves to a really great classroom discussion for students. Can come away with inspiring students to do things like participate in you know a technology oriented program. Here we have a a university wide venture challenge. There's one that's sort of for profit companies. One for not-for-profit uh, entities, and a few years ago, some of our students won the the not-for-profit uh, program university-wide with a with an app uh, to provide legal services. And so, I think those are ways in which students can be engaged in traditional law courses in ways that can educate them on the justice gap, and then inspire them to take those values with them both immediately while they're law students, but then forward beyond that in their in their wider career. Yeah. I one great advantage that a, a, a law school and university setting has is the fact that there's the opportunity to collaborate with people in other fields. Uh, I We just had a podcast uh, a week or two ago with uh, some of Bill's colleagues at uh, Georgetown, the Georgetown uh, Justice Alliance, which is a medical legal partnership, which involves both the uh, the law school and the uh, medical school and serves not only people in our community here in DC uh, with both their health outcomes by uh, introducing lawyers into the treatment uh, teams, but also helps train the next generation of lawyers and doctors to be sensitive about the uh, interactions between health and, and legal issues. And uh, as we're thinking about designing dispute resolution systems that will be fairer and uh, more efficient and more effective. Again, we probably not only need to uh, bring in people who are trying to use the system, but 
you know, people from design schools and from other, you know, other parts of the university that can help us think through these. Well, listen, I want to thank uh, all of you, uh, Tom and, and Bill and Miguel, for being with us today, but more importantly, for your leadership in responding to the justice gap as, as you're, you're doing your day jobs and uh, training the next generation of lawyers and helping us uh, innovate and uh, when the clarion call comes uh, for help, uh, answering that call. So thanks, thanks for all of that and uh, stay well. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for all you do. Thanks, Thank you, Ron. Wonderful to be with you. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.